You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Good evening and welcome. I think we'll begin. My name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult programs here. And it's a great delight this evening to welcome Dr. Tapali Diwan um, for our next in our series of talks that go with the Maharaja exhibition. Dr. Dipali Diwan is an art historian of South Asian visual culture. She holds a PhD from the University of Minnesota and a BA honors from McGill University, Montreal. She is currently curator at the Royal Ontario Museum, the other place, and teaches at the Department of Art at the University of Toronto with an affiliation with the Center for South Asian Studies. Her research focuses on 19th and 20th century visual culture of South Asia and the South Asian diaspora. She has co-authored a book on the 19th century photographer Raja Deen Dayal, forthcoming, and is now working on an overview of the aesthetic and discursive evolution of photography in India. She has received fellowships from the Social Science Research Council, the American Institute of Indian Studies, the College Art Association, and the MacArthur Program Interdisciplinary Center for the Study of Global Change. Dipali. Hi, good evening, everybody. Um, And thank you so much for coming today. It's a bit of a cold evening out there, so hopefully this is a nice alternative. What I'm going to be doing tonight in my talk is really talking about the intersection between photography and maharajas. So it's called photographing the maharajas, but really I kind of want to think about the category of maharaja much more broadly, Um, not only as kind of studio portraits of, of kings, but the various types of photographic practices that they engaged with, that they commissioned, that they used, uh, that circulated in and around their territories and and abroad, um, things like that. And really, my interest in in photography uh, goes back about 10 years. And I first became interested in photography really through looking at um, art education in 19th century South Asia. And I began noticing how um, images of temples, photographs of temples and things like that, kind of coincided with a lot of the first books written about Indian art history. And so I started really thinking a lot about, well, what's the relationship between photographs and knowledge, basically? Um, And I like to think about photographs not just as reflective of some kind of past or uh, preserving some kind of thing that they're that they're depicting, but really um, as productive in many ways. So photographs as helping produce knowledge, not just reflective of something, but productive of something. And so that's kind of my approach to photographs. I'm a firm believer, I should say, right up front, that there's no such thing as a straightforward photograph. So if you're reading something and it says, oh, well, this is just a straightforward photograph, uh-uh, like delete it, nix it. Um, be very critical of it because ultimately a photograph like any other imaging practice is a selection of various things um, 
within a frame composition at a certain angle, etc. And and so in that way, they are as much representations of what they depict as paintings are or, or other um, imaging practices. So that's kind of my approach to photography. I will just let you know right up front. Um, and so uh, I'm interested in this intersection of photography and Maharaja, thinking of Maharaja as a category more broadly. And in particular, I'm going to do it today in the talk by looking through the work of one particular photographer, and that's Dean Dayal. Um, he had, I'll explain a little more, but, but basically had a fairly remarkable career um, which spanned both work in the colonial administration and uh, working a lot for the Maharajas as well and within their territories. Um, and so what I hope to show is that photos produced at the intersection of these two things had multiple purposes could be, and can be read in multiple ways. Um, um, and so by the end, um, what I hope to show is that photographing the Maharajas is not only about capturing their resemblance, but producing an idea of the Maharaja, um, in many ways a notion that we still have today. So just for a little bit of, of background, and, and I apologize for, to anybody who, uh, for this is very repetitive, but I just feel like it's important to kind of set it up. Um, what you're looking at here is a map of um, uh, uh, the South Asia region during the Raj. So basically, um, the kind of yellow areas are British India, and the, bra the orange areas are the princely states. And basically, this is a region um, that uh, really has a, a variety of, of uh, geographical features. Uh, uh, the population comes from a variety of religions. There's numerous languages. And so something that I have always argued and, and do believe as an art historian is that in many ways, um, unlike perhaps other places in the world, for the South Asia region, the visual image has always carried uh, a high degree of significance. In many ways, it was the universal language for people. And so it was used and uh, developed uh, from quite early on um, uh, for various purposes. Um, uh, the South Asia region also, uh, during its history, has had various kinds of continued contact with people and cultures from outside. Um, they have come to the shores for trading. They have come down through uh, the Himalayan mountains, through the Silk Route. Um, various religious practices have been sent abroad. And so there has been, while a kind of isolation because of water and mountains, there has also been a great deal of kind of uh, uh, exchange as well during the course of its time. And so when we get to British India in the 19th century, this is not a new concept. It's, it's not suddenly new you know, people that uh, South Asia is interacting with. But in fact, the Europeans had a presence for, from the 16th century onwards uh, through various trade delegations that came to South Asia. At the time of the Taj Mahal, this was a land that was among the most wealthiest in the world, where it had luxury commodities like diamonds. It was, in fact, the world's only source of diamonds until the discovery of diamonds in the, in the 1840s, I think it is. Um, 
cotton uh, being considered a luxury item as well. And so for various reasons, people from other places came to South Asia for trade. Um, and uh, at, at during the 18th century, um, the uh, Britain in particular um, stepped up and developed its trade contacts with South Asia to quite an extent, developing a very large trading company called the East India Company, um, which developed port cities, forts, uh, armies to protect its goods, etc., and things like that. And so by the time you get to the mid-19th century, specifically 1857, there was a shift from trade interests to political interests um, with the British. And it was in 1857 that the, this region became formally a British colony. Um, but as you can see from the map, and this is what's so uh, poignant about this map, is that British India was really kind of a patchwork of different places around the region. The princely territories kind of uh, broke it up in different ways. And so in order to continue the extraction of goods, the extraction of resources from various parts of the region to the port cities and then by ship back home or to other parts in the, of the world to sell, they needed to have relationships with the independent territories, with the princely rulers. And so um, it was a very huge and complex system of relationships that developed. And by 1857, when the British took over the, uh, the parts that were formerly Mughal India. Um, they had established various types of relationships through something called indirect rule. So while these princely states, the Mahara led by the Maharajas as the figurehead, had political control of their state, it was really considered somewhat of a theater state um, and the British had various figures within the states and had a great deal of political control as well. So this is this, is this idea of in, indirect rule, which I feel is extremely important to state right up front, um, even to understand the whole category of the Maharaja. In fact, the Maharajas that we talk about today really are a product of the 19th century. They're a product of the system of princely states and indirect rule um, that uh, was developed at this time. And so while sometimes they get presented as this kind of courtly past that stretches off into you know, an indefinite um, uh, sort of past time, they are the, 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 the Maharajas that became so prominent um, in the 19th century really were a product of this system of indirect rule. <clears throat> okay, so just a little bit on photo history as well, which I think is important backdrop. Um, photography was invented in 1839, basically in the UK and France, and it was a technology that advanced certain image-making practices that had been used for some time. It was received with enthusiasm, but not without skepticism, and seemed to incorporate a series of contradictions right from the start that in many ways are still being worked out even today. Was it art or craft? Was it about truth or was it magical? Was it a reflection of nature or a product of culture? At the time of its invention, Europe was going through various empire-building practices, reaching out beyond its borders for economic gain through direct and indirect political control uh, beyond its borders, as I just explained. Some argue that photography's invention was hardly a coincidence at this time, and in fact came out of a desire to document 
the other, that was starting to be encountered with greater and more immediate frequency. In fact, some would argue that photography didn't coincide with 19th century colonialism, but in fact was a product of it. So when when we say that photography kind of coincided, or the, the height of the Raj kind of coincided with the invention of photography, the advent of photography, the two things weren't necessarily just these completely separate, independent things that coincided in time, but in fact could were likely very linked and a product, one a product of the other. Now, in India, photography quickly spread and was being practiced um, by 1840. Among the earliest practitioners whose work and names that survive to us are, are, most, are amateur European photographers working for the East India Company who would tour around to different sites and take photographs along the way um, in an effort to document what they perceived as a disappearing culture. Now, photography as a tool was quickly used by the British government um, and formally, uh, after for, they formally took over much of it, India in 1857. And it was used to document people, landscape, and architecture as a way to quick, quickly come to know the people and place they suddenly found themselves the rulers of. Um, and an example of this is this image that you're seeing here by John Murray, uh, who actually was a doctor uh, in the civil service. And here's an, uh, an image he took of the Taj Mahal from the east um, with ruins in the foregrounds, and it's uh, dated to 1858. And what you see here really is, uh, is an amateur European photographer kind of using um, the uh, uh, um, principles of, of uh, a picturesque style, which had occurred in painting as well, um, to... Um, depict the landscape of, of India. And so in this case, you have the Taj Mahal right here in the center, a kind of white marble structure kind of looming up from the back. But interestingly, much of the foreground is, is pretty much very dark uh, and in shadow. You see a little bit of ruins here. You see kind of a, a crouching figure here, possibly a, a person not really sure what's going, you know, what he's doing. Um, and then uh, a large part of this river that kind of cuts in. In many ways, this is an image um, uh, that um, presented India as a land kind of in ruins, where it had um, no sense of the past or a past that had been had once been glorious and had since declined, um, without a place without a centralized authority. Um, where um, people weren't necessarily being proactive, but more um, very passive. And so these were all the kind of elements, um, messages that were being promoted as a way to justify colonial rule, and photography was, was certainly used um, to that end um, by some of the early photographers. Now, not only um, were there uh, landscape uh, images done, but certainly... Um, portraits of the Maharajas as well that became very relevant post-1857. And I have to apologize. This um, caption is completely wrong. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. Um, this is the Maharaja of Baroda. It's actually around 1889, um, and it was done by a European firm in London called um, Vincent, Brook, Vincent Brooks Day and Son. Um, and so, a very formal studio portrait. Um, and now, these types of portraits of Maharajas, though, came a little bit after the landscape views. So they weren't 
the subject of the photograph, the, the camera's lens, right away. And in many ways, it was really kind of after 1877 where you see a lot of these formal kind of Maharaja portraits at least by European photographers. And 1877 is a, is a key date for anybody who came to the last lecture, um, uh, where Douglas Barrett Pierce, Pierce yeah. was talking about the 1877 Darbar, um, when, which marked the proclamation that Queen Victoria was now Empress of India. And in many ways, by taking this title, what she was trying to do was uh, claim herself as a legitimate successor among, uh, after the Mughals, uh, the Mughals being the emperors of India at the time, and now Queen Victoria was proclaiming herself empress of India. And so in many ways, um, they were trying to, uh, British were trying to establish themselves as legitimate successors to the Mughal empire and trying to position themselves as such. And so they organized sort of elaborate spectacles where various princely states had to come and pay homage and show loyalty to the new crown. And so a lot of these kind of formal studio portraits of the Maharajas dressed up in all their finery, jewels, you know, luxurious fabrics, things like that, really came out of that environment. In some ways, it was sort of like as an homage to, as an as a, um, uh, expression of one's loyalty, these portraits were kind of taken, and many of them were put together into a series and collections and kind of distributed around as kind of, you know, here you have collections of buildings, and then here's our collections of the Maharajas as well. Um, and so in many ways, you can look at this portrait of the Maharaja in a very similar vein that you can look at the landscape I just showed you. In many ways, both of them are images of grandeur, they convey a sense of loss. They suggest kind of lack of progress or technology and seem to be kind of frozen in time. So there's, there's, a, there's a similarity, a, a discursive similarity between the two. Now, this is kind of the majority of, this is the, the bulk of when you read books on Indian photography and the history of Indian photography, those are the types of images that are the majority that are in there, mostly because the books are based on uh, Western collections of photography where a lot of that material has survived. And that's a completely understandable first, second step in trying to recreate photo history of a place. Now, I think that the field is starting to shift towards looking at what are the other types of photographic images that survive, and then how does that change or modify our view of photographic history in India. And in this case, we can talk about it in terms of the intersection of photography and maharajas. And I give you just this example um, as, as one. Um, and a lot of this material that scholars are now looking at is coming out of archives out of South Asia itself, which provide different types of materials in which to kind of piece together a narrative history. And what I'm showing you here on your left is actually a carte de visite by um, a photographer named Harichand Chintaman. And there's not a lot known about him other than the images that survive, you know, that have his name and, uh, and his kind of studio stamp on them. But um, what is coming out slowly is that he was likely trained in one of the few and earliest photography programs, sort of photography uh, classes 
that were held in Bombay in the 1850s um, at one of the uh, art schools there. And um, it seems that after he got his training, he set up a commercial studio in Bombay. And from the stuff that survives, it seems that he really photographed all the elite of the period. So the Maharajas came to him, and all of the European uh, guys came to him too. And, and there's a zillion carte de visites with his stamp that survive. And so sort of trying to piece together sort of the history of his practice is, is still something that needs to be done. But I love... Um, this little uh, kind of engraving here. So this is the back of this, to be clear. Um, and you see sort of his studio stamp representing sort of the photographer as artist, right, in, the, in a formal studio, taking a formal studio portrait of, of a European couple. Um, this says uh, Raja Patiala. Um, and so it's naming the person who's on the other side of the, of the image. And... Um, and the point that I want to make with these is that we have to think about photographs of Maharaja as also being part of other pre-photographic imaging practices as kind of, um, sure, a break, but also as partly a continuum as well. And many of these carte de visites oftentimes you know, were reproduced, um, photographs of photographs would be reproduced, and they would be um, sort of circulated around in different arenas and collected as parts of collections. Um, and they, in that way, that practice resembles very much um, the practice of painting on ivories that was just um, a couple decades prior. And here you have an image of Maharaj of Patiala on, uh, on a painted ivory. And these were often also put into collections, framed together, often in a hierarchy of maharajas. So you might have had the Mughal emperor and then some of the, the lesser maharajas, like the Maharaj of Patiala, around him. And so in many ways, one can see the carte de visite and have to, has to try to think about the carte de visite in the same structures of hierarchy that existed in pre-photographic times and in pre-colonial times as well. So there's a lot of this history that still is, is being worked out, is the point I want to make. The photographer that I've worked on quite a bit is Dean Dial, and here you see him pictured right here, uh, and this is one of his um, uh, images, uh, photographs that he took in the mid-1886 mid um, of the Viceroy at the time in India. Now, he's a very interesting photographer because in many ways he brings together these two different aspects that I've talked about. Photography of the Maharajas in sort of an official colonial context and photography of the Maharajas kind of outside of an official colonial context um, because uh, he worked in both. Now, Dean Dayal was born in 1844 into a Jain family of jewelers. But rather than go into the family business, had had been traditionally done, he went on to the engineering college that had been set up by the British to train people to build roads and railways that were the priorities of the empire. So if you think back to that map I showed you, um, it was necessary to have treaties with the princely states because you wanted to create roads, you wanted to create railways that carried the goods from one place to another, and all of these kind of infrastructure things were high on the priority list of the British government in India. Um, 
And so he became a surveyor at first in the public works department in central India. And central India was a particular um, place that had a conglomeration of various princely states. It was, it's, it was an administrative unit of um, British India that had compo- uh, a lot of princely states as part of it. Um, and photography, uh, in, early in his career, started being used in surveying um, land to build roads, to build railways. It's unclear how Dial learned photography, but he seems to have been practicing it by the late 1870s. Um, and uh, so he worked both for the colonial government in this aspect, and then very soon, by being in central India, he was exposed and had contact with many of the princely states and the Maharajas at the time, and it seems that they also patronized him, and so he had um, a contact with them as well. During his career, he was probably the most pr- uh, prolific uh, photographer in India at the time, in the late 19th century, and certainly the most famous of the Indian photographers at the time. And he uh, ended up running three studios in three different locations. Um, and his photographs circulated in a number of different realms. Now, one of Dean Dial's earliest patrons was the Maharaja of Dhar. And you see him here on your left um, in a formal studio portrait. And here, um, in, uh, with his nobles basically set up in a way of a formal darbar. So um, uh, with the Maharaj of Dar in the middle and his nobles and, and courtiers kind of sp- uh, fanned out on the side, um, all of them looking towards the center, so as a way that their gaze would, uh, would uh, direct the viewer's gaze directly down the front to the Maharaja. And in many ways, um, that reproduces compositions that you find in miniature paintings as well. Um, now, uh, let's see. Now, Dhar became a princely state actually um, in 1881, and um, uh, later it was actually conf- confiscated back by the British in 1857 after the uprising, and then later restored back to the Maharaja. And he received he was his name was actually uh, he just had the title of Raja, which means king. Um, until 1877 at the Darbar when he was given the title Maharaja, Great King. And so he was given it by the colonial administration. So again, you have to think about sort of this very murky kind of history between the, the view of the Maharajas that we have today really was very much a product of the 19th century and um, the colonial uh, administration at the time. He was quite a photo enthusiast um, and he, in many ways, needs to be considered an elite patron, along with the viceroy in the previous image uh, that I showed, that actually commissioned Dial to do that picture. Um, and in many ways, they were, um, while in the colonial administration, quite different in um, status. Within the realm of photography, um, they were very equal as patrons um, uh, with Dial. Um, in many ways, in these images, um, photography was being used by the Maharaja of Dhar to represent himself as the head of state, as the head of state for his princely territory. Um, and in the case of the Darbar image, it is a continuation of painting traditions, not so much a break with it. 
Both of these images appear in a very interesting um, photograph album that's currently in the Alkazi collection of photography. And it was an album that was likely um, a, a personal album of the Maharaja of Dar. And so in it, you can see photographs that were personally relevant to him or had some sort of symbolic meaning for him. In addition to these two, you also had this type of image. Um, this is a group portrait of the Maharaja of Indore, Maharaja Holkar of Indore, who's right here, with his various Maharajas, um, uh, Rajas and courtiers of his territory, with Lord Northbrook, who was um, uh, the governor general at the time, and, um, or viceroy at the time. And it was during the tour of the Prince of Wales in Endor, right before the Darbar. So for the Darbar, um, the Prince of Wales, a blood relative of the queen, uh, the first royal to go to India, toured around India, and his tour you know, made a big sensation. It was in all the newspapers, documented you know, back and front. And so this type of image, was. this is also in the Dhar album, and indicates was at the time in fact, a new type of photograph. It was the group portrait commemorating a visit. And one has to remember that visits at this time wasn't just a casual uh, occurrence, but in fact had profound political significance. <clears throat> now, okay, as I said, Lord Northbrook was governor general um, and viceroy, actually, from 1872 to 1876. And this... Um, photograph um, shows them in the residency in Indor, and Indor was the capital of um, this princely state. Um, Lord Northbrook is seated in the center looking toward the Maharaja and other native chiefs, and um, what is interesting about this is that in this photo, in some ways, one has to question what is the subject. This might have been one of the first photographs that Dean Dial ever did. And it kind of sets up issues and relationships that he worked on during the rest of his career in photographing various maharajas and leaders of princely states. And so here you have him um, assembling this group outside because inside photography wasn't um, uh, possible at this time, certainly not with this large of a group. And it's almost like he's taken um, the space and almost flattened it like a picture plane. And so you can read it almost in registers of where you have the floor, the carpet, the group of people, the wall, the balcony above. And it's almost like a space, that a three-dimensional space that's been flattened in the, in the photographic image. There's almost not much depth in the, in the image at all. But what's most interesting, and you'd wonder why they didn't do the photograph again, because you're thinking, well, Lord Northbrook isn't looking towards the camera, right? Um, this was likely, and I mean, I don't know for sure, right? I'll never know for sure, but compared to Dial's other work, I think this was an extremely strategic way to negotiate the power relations between the Maharaja and the British figurehead. So while you have North North, Lord Northbrook seated in the center of the image, right, in the picture plane, the Maharaja of Indore is off to the right, and yet by that one small little gesture of a face turning, 
it's almost like the attention has goes to the Maharaja of Indore. And so in this way, purely through kind of an imaging uh, practice, through um, a matter of composition, of capturing just the right moment, in many ways, Dayal is able to satisfy the, the sort of power the status that photographs have to convey for the political person. Uh, the person had more political status in this, in this photo, which is Lord Northbrook, but also since this photo was found in the Maharaj of Dhar's album, it was likely one that was also acceptable to the Maharaj of Indore as one that kind of compl- uh, also uh, expressed his status. So there's very subtle... So what you have is Dayal kind of um, figuring out how to make very subtle... Um, uh, negotiate very subtle power relations within photographing practice. Now, Indore, um, in many ways, has the same history as Dar, uh, but it was a larger and wealthier territory. Um, in it, unlike Dhar, though, uh, Indore wasn't exactly necessarily an independent princely state. There was lots of different variations among the princely states, and it was, in fact, a British-controlled area. That's why the public works agency that Dial worked for was headquartered in Indore. Um, now, Dial not only did photos of Maharajas themselves, individually or in groups, but also of their princely territories. And landscape views are one uh, thing that I feel really need to be considered when we're talking about photographing the Maharajas. If we think about the category of Maharaja much more broadly, um, landscape views play a big role because traditionally, in many ways, the land of the princely territory, of the kingdom, very much was an extension of the body of the king. And so there was a relationship between um, the body of the king and uh, the land in which he ruled. And by extension, one could say there's a relationship um, between the photographic portraiture and landscape views of the territories. This particular one um, is... Um, a view of a river um, by uh, the residency, which is where um, the, the sort of British head of the state would come and stay. Um, a very beautiful one, actually, and almost like an abstract image, um, I find, um, where you have the river kind of ending here and the trees um, uh, going up on either side, and, and Dial, through his composition, has created some very strong triangles that get reflected in the river um, with only this one boat kind of... Um, uh, on the river itself in order to give a little perspective. Now, what's interesting about these two things, many of his landscape views have to be seen um, um, as a uh, product of the principles of surveying that he learned uh, while uh, um, at the public work system. This is actually a view from this bridge. So standing here, he took this view. And then this view would have been standing somewhere over here, looking down this way. Um, and so it's basically views from either side. Now, this kind of um, photographing practice of taking views from one side and then the other side was an absolute um, uh, technique of the surveyor in photographing the land. And in many ways, these techniques were used for both 
colonial purposes as well as for the Maharajas because these views would end up not only uh, being used for land-surveying purposes, but in the very albums that the Maharajas used to commemorate their territories. And I'll give you another example. This is an an amazing um, photograph, actually. Um, That's a bird's-eye perspective from the fort at Gwalior, Gwalior being another princely territory at the time. And in this one, um, you see this is from one side, and in fact this view, you can see it's from the other. Dial is using various types of um, uh, surveying techniques in order to compose the picture. So from a bird's eye perspective, um, uh, this fort was built between the 8th to the 15th century, stands on an isolated rock, and was one of the biggest of its time. It was a model of pre-modern strategic defense and would have been of interest to the Central India Agency, which Dayal worked for, as a monument of cultural heritage. Now, Dayal likely positioned himself on the opposite wall of the fort, which was not an easy task to accomplish, considering that he would have had to wait for just the right atmospheric conditions and time of day to take the photograph. In Dayal's image, the road leading up to the fort could be read as a kind of baseline, which is one of the uh, terminologies in surveying technique the points in the distance were considered stations, and here they've, he's used the uh, uh, domes on top of these um, kind of um, uh, projections from the fort as um, stations and positioned just so that one can read a kind of receding space into the distance purely because of these um, points on the, on the picture plane and then to have the right atmospheric conditions and possibly manipulated in the printing process, you have these um, uh, uh, gradations of um, cliffs overhanging as a way to also read distance. So in some ways, um, just purely through the composition of the photo, Dial applies surveying techniques in order to um, help the viewer understand the space. Now, Gwalior was the largest state in the Central India Agency and the fourth uh, most populous princely state in British India. The Maharaja himself, which you see here, actually, Maharaja of Gwalior, this was done uh, in Dial's um, Bombay studio. He was actually uh, just a young boy um, when he came to power, and he was raised um, with a British tutor, uh, which was appointed by, by the colonial administration, part of their strategy was to train many of the new maharajas in uh, basically English education as a way to, as they grew up, you know, have no problems kind of getting them to sign the treaties that they needed. Um, And he was a huge advocate of photographing his territory. And many of the images got used in photo albums to commemorate himself and he patronized uh, Dial up until the 20th century. Um, and so the two of them, even when Dial moved out uh, to different parts um, of India, uh, continued to have a relationship um, uh, for, for long um, down the road. One of the images that he commissioned uh, Dial to do was this two-part panorama of his new palace and his gardens, the Jai Vilas Palace. And this is dated to about the late uh, 1878. Um, The palace itself was completed in 1874 to welcome the Prince of Wales on his tour through India. 
It was designed in an Italianate style and embellished with two of the world's most large, uh, two of the world's largest Venetian chandeliers. And in fact, um, it was known for having an entrance hall that was one of the largest open spaces of its time. So no columns kind of supporting the ceiling in the middle. It was one of those big open spaces. So Dial um, photographed it a few years after it was built, and it captures one of his photograph captures one of the most massive development projects of its time. In this way, it would have been of interest as a building project to the government office Dial worked for. Yet it was also of interest. Um, uh, to the young Dial as he built relationships with local native rulers. His photographs served both the colonial administration and the Maharaj of Gwalior um, and were used in different contexts for documentary purposes as well as a means of celebrating the achievements of a native ruler. And so in many ways, um, while it's using sort of the techniques of surveying and, and sort of showing an expanse of land, first of all, it's not of one of those uh, like John Murray's earlier photograph of ruins and an old building and, and a sense of being kind of stuck in the past and, and not progressing. This is a photograph of a modern development project funded and uh, completely done by a native ruler. So in many ways, it serves almost as a critique or a counter-narrative to some of those earlier architectural um, and landscape photographies that had been circulating at the time. Um, this is another example um, of a bridge, uh, railway bridge over one of the rivers in the Gwalior territory. Um, Dial would have played a role in surveying this land in preparation for the construction work of this bridge. Um, in much of his work, he was involved in projects of railway uh, construction and bridge construction. This view of Holker State Railway as it crosses the Nirmada River shows a combination of both railway and bridge construction and shows the result of a public works project that Dial was likely involved in. In the photograph, the camera is slightly positioned uh, to show the railway line stretching out into the distance. The length of the bridge itself is emphasized, reflecting its status as, at the times as the first for rank uh, first in rank for size and difficulty of construction. Um, so in many ways, kind of like the palace. This theme of progress is underscored by the bullock cart that has been carefully and strategically positioned in the foreground, kind of contrasting old modes of transport with new modes of transport. Um, and yeah. <clears throat> now, as Dial kind of built up his clientele among the Maharajas, we have him. We see him going from the smaller Maharajas, like the Maharaja of Dar, the Maharaja of Indore, to more uh, wealthier and more powerful Maharajas. So the Maharaja of Gwalior was the wealthiest and most powerful among the Central Indian states. When Dial reached that point, he in fact took a furlough to photograph around North India. Um, and then when he came back, he submitted his resignation to um, the uh, Public Works Department, um, the, to the colonial administration. And he set off on his own to establish commercial studios around India. The next place he went, and this has been kind of a mystery in the history of Indian photography of like, okay, well, why did he go here next? But it completely makes sense if you think about it in the hierarchy of the Maharajas at the time. 
The next place he went was to the territories of the Nizam of Hyderabad. The Nizam of Hyderabad was the most powerful and wealthiest princely ruler at the time. And so you, what you see in Dayal is a kind of enterprising young photographer who was going around building a practice and relationship to the elites that he knew. And so by uh, then going to Hyderabad and becoming um, and receiving the patronage of the Nizam, it was sort of um, reaching sort of the height of his career. Now, the Nizam is a, is a very interesting person. Um, you see him here on the left um, in 1877. Uh, that was a portrait done for the 1877 Darbar. And you see him as a young child. And in fact, he's another one that was um, uh, educated by a British tutor, appointed to the, to the throne as a, as a child and kind of grew up um, within the colonial context, in that context of indirect rule. And here you see him actually in 19, 1892 um, as a, a kind of formal studio portrait um, in full kind of Western outfit. Um, the Nizam um, uh, is a very interesting man. He never went abroad. Uh, he never traveled um, much beyond his territory. And yet he would um, order... Um, he liked this one um, apparently uh, European fabric, and so he ordered 365 suits made of the same fabric, so that he had a new one to wear every day. You know, and so it was this kind of lavish kind of spending. At least these are the stories, right, that go around, and one has to kind of think critically about those too. Um, but on the other hand, he also, um, while receiving and maintaining cordial relationships with many of the of the British government, he also had a way of kind of of subtly resisting many of the um, uh, kind of ways of representing the Maharajas uh, that they were doing. So you can see this image and read it very much in contrast to that first studio portrait that we saw of the Maharaja of Baroda, kind of dressed up in his finery and his jewels and all that stuff. You will not find one of the Nizam of Hyderabad like that. He refused to kind of get dressed up in the sort of finery um, and uh, jewels and, and such. And, and when he came, in fact, to the subsequent Darbar in 1903, it was kind of written about in all the newspapers of like, oh, you know, all the other Maharajas came with their jewels on except the Nizam. Oh, no. And it was... You know, these kinds of forms, subtle forms of resistance, of not fitting in to that image of the Maharaja that was so kind of promoted um, as almost a Maharaja, as a decorative item, as an ornament. Um, he sort of resisted that through his clothing, through, through various ways, refusing to travel abroad. And so he's a very interesting man. And so he, um, when, and so Dayal saw this, went down to Hyderabad set up a studio there and began practicing in Hyderabad and receiving the patronage of the government. And in 1896, he was named the official photographer of the Nizam. Now, there's only a couple examples of some of the Maharajas kind of naming photographers their official photographer, but it's very interesting because what, it's, what they're doing really is, is putting the photographer in the position of what would have been the court artist 
in previous generations as a chronicler of empire, but simply using a different practice. And so it was kind of mixing this kind of new technology with a kind of courtly past or um, you know tradition of image making um, that is so interesting um, for this relationship between Dial and the Nizam. One of the first projects that Dial did, um, now that he had kind of perfected his technique of um, photographing the territory of the Maharajas, was to create a album of views of the Nizam's dominion. And that was the first project he took, and in fact it became, it remained the most popular one, and the government, the Nizam's government, would order copies of this album for 20 years after its production from the studio uh, for various purposes. And one of the main one was for gift giving. And here you see, in fact, the um, uh, inscription on this album that says, To Her Excellency, um, the Marchioness of Lansdowne, uh, who was, she was the wife of the Viceroy at the time, from Osman Jha, who was the Prime Minister of the Nizam, wouldn't have been appropriate for the Nizam to give it himself. That's a whole different story. So as Prime Minister um, gave it, and it said Calcutta, July 25th, 1889, sumptuous kind of leather cover, um, uh, and with uh, the Dean Dial's name down here. And here's an example of, of one of, of these photographs. <clears throat> um, these, this sort of Nizam's uh, Dominion's album is part of a long tradition of gift-giving, in the 19th century, photography then became incorporated into traditional modes of gift giving. We have examples of the Maharaj of Baroda um, giving uh, photographs as gifts uh, during the Prince of Wales tour. We have examples of Maharaj of Dhar gifting albums of views of his kingdom to Lord Lansdowne. Um, and here you have uh, the Nizam's government gifting albums or views of his kingdom to others, um, all the elites. Uh, at the time. And so in many ways we need to see these albums sort of as embodiments of the royal territory, sort of embodiments of the kingdom and uh, being gifted out as a way to kind of uh, reiterate or stress them as independent territories. Um, <clears throat> among this type of album construction are also um, albums that commemorate visits of VIPs to the Nizam's territory. And there's a lot that can be said about the political implications of these visits. I mentioned a little bit earlier, but it's, it's interesting how Dial's career starts off by photographing the visit of, of, of Lord Northbrook to Indore. And in many ways, this became his bread and butter while in Hyderabad. Because as the, the most wealthiest princely territory, everybody and their cousin came through Hyderabad uh, to visit the Nizam, and not so much as a way to pay homage to him or, or, or for cordial relations. The viceroys, on the one hand, it became part of their duty to visit all the maharajas, kind of as a way to keep them in check, like, you know, they, all, they kind of came in to sort of check out how things were going on. But in addition, you have basically the leaders of other European nations, um, and not only European, but other um, uh, foreign leaders coming into India and being hosted by the Nizam and being set off on elaborate hunts, um, uh, being hosted uh, with uh, parties, uh, masquerade balls, elaborate um, breakfasts, um, things like that. 
And these visits were highly political um, and were commemorated in visit albums, um, an extremely enterprising um, manifestation of this interface between photo- photogra- photography and maharajas, uh, in, but uh, authored by the Dean Dial Studio. And so in this one here, you see Lord Lan- this is um, the album of the visit of Lord Lansdowne in 1892. Uh, and you see among the types of photographs you find in these albums are um, Lord Lansdowne visiting the various nobility in Hyderabad. And so you see him here, and here he's, he's visiting Nawab Kurshad Jah, who is one of the kind of top nobles. And so that gets commemorated in a photograph, that kind of group photograph. You get him um, um, watching the military review, um, enjoying sports in the new sports stadium built in Hyderabad, and then enjoying a kind of boat cruise on one of the man-made lakes there. I want to um, just look at uh, two images in this album a little more closely. And this, to me, is um, kind of the crux of, of Dean Dial's career as well as the history of photography in India that hasn't, hasn't been completely explored or excavated yet. These two images um, document the boat cruise that the Viceroy and his companions and the Nizam and his companions go on while during his visit. And um, you kind of see a series of photographs, one of them leaving, one of them coming back, and, and this kind of the group before they get on the boat. And you have to think, why would these two photographs be actually put in the album together? They kind of look the same. And really to anybody sort of outside the courtly culture world, they do seem completely redundant. The only thing that is different about these, can anybody see? is the position of the Nizam and the position of the Viceroy in relation to the tree in the background. So here you have, and you have to understand, where is Dean Dial standing? So here's the river, here's the dock that they're on. So he has to be on the other side of the water, first of all, sort of standing on the bank. And here's the Viceroy, here's the Nizam. In this image, the Nizam's head is in the middle of this kind of tree in the background. In this image, I'm sorry, sorry, did I say Nizam? I meant Viceroy. And then in this image, the Nizam's head is in the middle of this kind of prominent tree in the background. Now, okay, so so what, right? Well, if you think about pre-photographic imaging practices in India, especially those that image the king, like this one. Court artists developed strategies for presenting the king in paintings like this so that the viewer, without any word or pointer on the page, would be able to tell where the king is. So in this case, for example, this is a page from um, a manuscript um, that that shows um, the Mughal emperor here um, uh, after a battle, basically overtaking the city of Kabul, um, one of sort of the histories, um, the Mughal emperor Babur. 
And you see him sitting here, and there's various strategies that the artist has used to assert the presence of the king. For one, he's larger than everybody else, so there's, a, there's what's called hierarchical scale. He's the only one that has space around him, whereas everybody else is kind of overlapping. You have the chowry bearer, this kind of attendant who, who waves a fan over his head. You know that there's always a king there if someone is waving a fan over someone's head. And you have various um, uh, compositional techniques that highlight the king, such as this archway. He's positioned right almost in the middle of this archway. And in many ways, the archway serves as a halo. And in other miniature paintings, oftentimes the king would have a halo. So Dean Dial, coming out of that tradition and being familiar with it, I think in these two portraits, the only thing that makes sense is that, in fact, he is kind of collapsing the space of the photographic image almost into a two-dimensional plane like a miniature painting and using, I mean, he can't draw a halo in there, right? But he's using the, the elements of the picture almost like abstract shapes. So the tree serves almost like a halo for Lord Viceroy, and the, I mean, yeah, with Viceroy uh, Lansdowne and then for the Nizam. And the reason why they're both like that and then reproduced in the, in the middle of the album is to show almost like an equal um, sta- uh, uh, status for them. So that while there is an implicit power relation of the Viceroy being dominant, you also have the Nizam being um, uh, status being underscored in this way as the ruler of an independent state. And it's this kind of negotiation of power relations between various leaders, the Maharajas, the British officials, that Dayal's work becomes almost um, uh, highly sophisticated at. Anybody think this is as cool as I do? Yeah, yeah this is, I'm, I'm sure this is what's happening. I'm sure of it. I would be happy to hear other interpretations, but I'm sure of it. <laughs> okay, so just let's, we'll end um, with these, uh, just to talk about these two images. I won't talk too long, but I feel that it's important to also mention that some of the other types of images that became very popular in Hyderabad as kind of um, uh, reflections of the royalty there were images of palaces and interiors. Now, while it might seem, you know, somewhat obvious um, uh, that, oh, you know, that this would be the case, in Hyderabad, it was particularly significant, and let me tell you why. The most frequently (coughs) photographed um, interior spaces was this one here. It was the palace of Bashir Bagh, and this is um, a view of the, one of the main kind of um, reception rooms um, in that palace. Bashir Bagh was built around 1880. Um, and then purchased by Sir Ashman Jha, so the prime minister who gifted that album, right, around 1883. And it became a site for hosting the growing number of visiting dignitaries to Hyderabad, from viceroys to relatives of queens and to foreign royalty. And among foreign royalty that came, the czar um, came, Archduke Ferdinand of Austria came. There's a whole list of of different um, kind of foreign royals that came down to Hyderabad. Um, it was built in a Palladian style with an Italianate entryway, um, and Sir Asmanja invested a considerable sum in renovations and additions to transform the complex. In fact, 
the identification between the owner and the palace is reflected in the name itself. Bashir Bagh literally means the gardens of Bashir, which was actually one of Ashmanjah's names. So within the palace itself, you have sort of it as an embodiment of its owner. <clears throat> in the various photograph albums, images of Bashir Bagh uh, from different time periods are mixed together to represent a united portrait of the palace, um, amongst which the interiors feature centrally. Um, this is one of the most frequently reproduced images and widely circulated of the main drawing room. Um, it shows seats arranged in conversational clusters with medium and small size side tables displaying photographs and visit albums um, for those who had been guests in the palace. The international style of the room deemed appropriate uh, for a space of hospitality is manifest in the imported elements, such as the Brussels carpet, the damask uh, drapes, crystal wall brackets, um, etc. Um, and many of the uh, gasoliers with their bulbous glass covers hanging along the sides of the room, actually, um, underscore the need for plenty of light in the evenings for entertaining, so a, a space of hospitality. Um, and in fact, this two stacked cushions is most likely a, um, a photographer's device to kind of visually orient the viewer because there's views from the other side of the room and the same two cushions are there in the foreground. So he's kind of composing the space, you know, and, and so it's not just, you know, point and click. It's, this is, these are um, extremely carefully uh, composed images. Hospitality, Alison Mackenzie Shaw has shown, was a means through which Hyderabadi nobility was restructured and reinvented in the late 19th century. Um, it was connected to larger reinvention of aristocratic, aristocratic culture in England and Europe at the end of the 19th century when there emerged an, iner an international traveling elite. These Hyderabadi nobles were part of this traveling elite class, meeting in various European centers and playing host to traveling nobles within the boundaries of their own princely dominions. She calls them mobile nobles, it's kind of cute. This resulted in a shift in urban geographies of elite residences from behind walls within the confines of the old city to lofty perches in the surrounding hills and commanding views. And here you can see you know, lots of space around this particular palace. It's always kind of off in a kind of rural setting, but um, kind of perched on a hill so everybody can see it, so it's not hidden away. In this way, new Hyderabadi palace construction was modeled after hill stations, um, which were local locales of leisure during the summer where British and Indian elite escaped the heat. Um, <clears throat> Shah argues that through travel, the nobles of Hyderabad and Europe shared ritual practices and claimed one another's heritage as integral to their own identity. In the context of Bashir Bagh views and views of its interior, this reflected a participation in an international community. They came to represent the self of the Hyderabadi noble as international aristocrat. Um, and so, in many ways, these photographs, what I hope I've taken you through is a journey kind of from Maharaja studio portraits that you see illustrated in all the books and probably thought you were going to see today, since my lecture was titled Photographing the Maharajas, um, to thinking much more broadly about the category of Maharaja, how it was produced in the 19th century, how photography played a role, and how images other than studio portraits came to embody the Maharaja in different ways and negotiate power relations between um, the Maharajas and the colonial uh, administration. 
So what I've hope I've shown is, is, is to show how photography um, was used in various ways, and that the maharajas, through their patronizing practices as agents in photography, not just subjects of the camera lens, um, played a role in manipulating the photographic image um, to for various ways, as constructing an identity for themselves. Um, and promoting themselves as powerful and just rulers, sort of as a counter-narrative to um, the one provided by the colonial administration. Um, considering the various coffee table books and lavishly illustrated, with lavishly illustrated photographs of maharajas in their palaces, it seems to me, um, and all of these books, if, if, I don't know if everybody noticed, has really come out in the last 10 years. I mean, there's been just one coffee table book after another of, of sort of maharajas, maharajas' costumes, maharajas' jewelry, maharajas' palaces, all of this stuff. I spoiled my punchline. Oh, my God, I can't believe that. Um, and, and I think that a lot of this kind of attention to maharajas um, and these kind of romantic images from the past really has come out of a post-1990s ep- economic liberalization in India where through a lot of changes that happened at the time in economic policy, in many ways India has opened its borders to a great deal of sort of um, uh, foreign trade and and things being part of, really becoming a part of the global economy. As a result, um, the tourist industry in India has really skyrocketed and we see a lot of the palaces being turned into museums, luxury hotels and spas. And so it wouldn't be surprising to see many of these big coffee table books very much linked to a kind of emerging tourist, different type of very luxury tourist culture in India. And looking at the latest fashion accessories that come off the Paris runways, one has to wonder if the commodification of the Maharaja hasn't reached a new level. In this Maharaja bag, the photograph of the Maharaja is central to its design element, likely pulled from illustrations from many of these coffee table books. And I actually called the company. I was like, so do you have an archive of photos? And do you still want it? Can I have it? Um, No, they hadn't. These aren't vintage photos. These are photos that they seem to have pulled from the books, which there's copyright issues, but we'll not even go there. The photographs are placed on the surface in a collage. It evokes a courtly past and is associated with notions of luxury, refined quality, and exoticness. In this object, the Maharaja remains an object of voyeuristic fascination, a fashion fetish, to be stared at, to be worn. Um, 19th century, you had a Maharaja on your arm, has now been transformed into a different kind of Maharaja on your arm. So this is no more than ever facilitated by the photographic image. Thank you so much. Yeah, so we have time for questions. And if you wouldn't mind using the microphone to ask the question. Did somebody put their hand up? It's okay, you can take a moment to think, reflect. It always fascinates me that you can look at these images and read them and reread them and you know keep reading new history depending on you know what we've learned and so on i love it yeah absolutely and and in fact many people working in photo history today really are 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 understanding more and more that the meanings that photographs have often are more to do with the context that they're found in than anything inherent in the image itself, right? So circulation and context has a lot to do with the production of meaning, not so much the image itself. 
I'm actually really interested in the outfit, the, the man in the middle. What is he wearing? <laughs> so this one. Uh, this guy? Yes. He's just got an ex- extremely elaborate silk brocade a garment on, uh, the coat that goes over. He's on the cover of one of those books. One of the, I think, royal costumes. So we have one up there in the middle, Mayor, and I think, uh, oh, is there one down here? Yeah. Oh, okay, sorry. First. Yes. Was me? Yeah. Uh, sorry. Uh, so are these uh, pictures uh, available in a, in, like, in a book, or is it something you're working on, or the, Mr. Dean Dayal? Um, I, I have co-authored a book on Dean Dayal, and it's in press right now. Um, it'll come out in early 2012, knock on wood. Um, and so a lot of the images that I show here, in terms of what collections are they in, is that what you're asking? Yeah. Um, a lot of them are either in the ROM, the ROM has a good collection of Dean Dials now, um, or the Alkazi collection of photography, in, which is now in Delhi. Uh, or the Peabody Essex Museum has a, a fabulous collection of Dean Dials. And so between those two places and then the ROM as well, um, that's where most of my images come from. And, and actually, I take that back. British Library has quite a bit, too. Thanks. So we had one in the back. Dipali, excellent her talk. <laughs> um, what type of cameras did they use? And uh, the brand name, and because it was quite early on during the photography, right? So if you can uh, explain a little bit about that, right? Um, I'm not going to get too technical. I always give a caveat, which I forgot to give today, that I'm not an expert in the technical aspect of photography, but it's very, very important, and I'm learning more and more. Um, I've shown a, quite a range of, of of dates for photographs. I mean, we've looked at basically 1850s all the way to the 1900s in these images. And photograph technology changes massively during that time from very large, bulky cameras um, that required many chemicals on site to treat the plate, expose the plate, and then treat it again to fix the image. And, and, and so lots of apparatus and a very kind of expensive hobby for those amateur European photographers um, and early photographers um, to... Um, uh, cameras that were a little easier to use, the dry plate negative um, made the need to carry all those chemicals around not as necessary. And so Dean Dial was using dry plate glass negatives um, and uh, printing on albumin paper, but still a fairly bulky camera needing some assistance. Um, and then when you get to the turn of the century, photography had completely changed and you have things like the brownie camera coming out where it became far more affordable um, and far more easy to use and and carry around. And so that studio portrait of the Maharaja of Gwalior um, was done in Dean Dial's Bombay studio. But really by that time, you know, photography was was being practiced by many people um, and was much more available. Um, But the kind of formal studio portrait still kind of stood out as something you did at a special occasion. Does that answer part of your question, Mayor? Thanks. 
Um, many of our photographs uh, have been co- acquired in the last 10 years, basically. Um, the bulk of it is um, a private collection um, uh, that, was, that was owned by a man named Cyrus Jabvala. And uh, he's actually the husband of Ruth Prower Jabvala, who many of you might know as the playwright, screenwriter of many of the Merchant Ivory films. And he's an architect and collected those photographs over the course of his lifetime. I find architects collect photographs quite a bit. Um, and so um, he collected them for many decades while he had a business in India, and then just it stayed with him when he migrated west. Um, and he was getting to an age where he just wasn't interested in keeping it anymore, and his children weren't interested. So through various contexts, um, we were able to acquire them. And I think it's actually a very, very interesting collection, and hopefully we'll be able to provide some of that more textured history to the photography, to hit more textured understanding of the history of photography in India. <clears throat> Correct. Um, before you answer, do you mind summarizing the question? Oh, that's a good because idea. we're recording this, yeah. hopefully, The whole thing podcast. with the microphone is because it's trying to be recorded as a podcast. And the answers and so. don't make sense if we don't know what the question <clears throat> that's was. That's true. Um, the first question was, how did the ROM acquire its collection? And the second question uh, is about, was there a difference in how Muslim and Hindu maharajas used photography? Um, it, it's not that much, quite frankly, um, I'm trying to think through it as I speak. Um, I think, I mean, there's certainly different subjects that were photographed. Um, I'm trying to think, there's not that many religious ceremonies. I mean, a few that get done. But notions of kingship, ideas of kingship, really were shared among the Hindu and and, uh, Muslim maharajas. So, and the Nizam's not... I mean, he's not, he doesn't have the title. Maharaja is a title, so he doesn't have the title Maharaja. It's, it's a Nizam. Um, but in terms of using photography, I don't see much of a difference that can be ascribed to religious background. Yeah. And it's certainly that's not the difference between the other Maharajas wearing their full outfits and the Nizam not. It, I don't think it has to do with religion at all. Yes. How would the um, early Indian photographers learn their craft? Well, in the case of, I mean, this is still a question. Like, it's 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 unclear how Dayal learned his photography. There is an oral history that's been passed down in his family, the descendants that still survive, um, that simply says that some European photographer who was working in the region where he was working decided to go back to England and left his photographic equipment with Dial. Like that's a purely but it's purely an oral history. I mean, who knows? Um, it didn't I don't he, he photography was not being taught at the college that he trained at when he was there. It started being taught shortly after he left. So it had him learning it had to have been a much more informal situation, perhaps on the job or perhaps on the side. Um, but in the case of Hari Chand Chintaman, we do have some records that he attended a photography class that was set up in the in the 1850s at um, an institution called the Elephant Stone Elephant Stone uh, College in Bombay. 
And I don't think that photography class lasted too long, but the few years that it was there, he took advantage of it. And so there must be others out there too. And I know that the the, uh, Madras School of Art down in South India also had a photography kind of class for a couple years, um, but then stopped. And there's a few names of students who probably trained there and then went on to do work. But that's kind of also part of the, the history that's kind of still being recovered. I don't know if you know the backstory uh, for that first photograph, first or second, where I think it's Lord Northbrook yeah. who is looking um, at the Maharaja. You would think that uh, he would be very upset that that kind of photograph at that time would have survi- survived because he is not the he is the the representative of the British is not the starring. Um, figure in that uh, photograph. So I'm just wondering what, how, how people would have responded to that photograph at that time. <laughs> I mean, I think you can read it in multiple ways because he is still sitting in the center. He's just looking off to the side, right? And um, I mean, at that time, a large group photograph like that was novel enough that it's kind of too exciting to bother about small little mistakes in the photograph. Um, but at the same time, I'm actually not even sure if Lord Northbrook saw it. I mean, it was in an album that belonged to the Maharaja of Dhar. And if my kind of reconstruction of the history is correct, it was probably one of the first photographs Dial ever took in an official context. And from that point was very encouraged to go on. And, and so it was likely printed after Northbrook left and circulated only among the Maharajas. And so far, there's only that one print that has survived, to my knowledge. How so, uh, don't Sorry, even know if they started if you saw it. How long would the pose be in those days? <clears throat> um, it certainly depends on the the light conditions during the day, and and you know what was going on. There was a lot of variables involved. But by the 19, late 19, 1870s, I mean, it was pretty fast. It would have only been maybe a second or two. There's far more knowledgeable photofork in the audience right now, I'm sure, who can answer these questions, actually. Maya, do you know? I would think that you pretty much Okay. <laughs> the sensitivity of material Yeah. And in that case, it looked like a fairly light, I mean, it was a bright day, it seemed, and so it wasn't in that particular photograph. No, oh, sorry. We have, no, I meant we like, two okay, more we can questions. take some more. <laughs> two more hands. Yeah, there's a couple uh, of Just going back to the photograph about Lord Northbrook. Is that right? Lord Northbrook. The, the group photograph the group we're talking about? Yeah. yeah. Um, so the photographer would have taken instruction from the Maharaja for that photograph? You know, I mean, you all are asking questions that I would love to know the answers to. Okay. I mean, there's just no account of how it happened. Right. It's only clues in the photograph and the context of his career that some degree of reconstruction is possible, but only to a certain extent. So thinking about the relationship between workers to the Maharajas, um, and a little bit, there is a one-page bio that Dial penned about himself later on in life that survives, that talks a little bit about how that incident encouraged his photographic practice. Um, My sense is, is that photograph was a um, 
a uh, kind of a somewhat of a spontaneous thing. I think I think he was just called in at the last moment, take a photograph of us, and then tried to assemble them as best he could. And I would imagine took a couple prints before they felt you know impatient. There would have been someone mediating, if not some people mediating. I mean, I don't think it was purely the photographer, you know, orchestrating the whole thing. And yet, I I do think that he was thinking about all of those issues of power, how to represent the various power relations in that image so it didn't offend anybody um, while he was trying to do it. I think it was actually the first group portrait he's done, he did. Have any of the negatives survived specifically, or would you just have the prints? Um, the negatives you would tell you yeah. pretty much if there was another print um, done, which you know was then selected for uh, the Maharaj, and there could have been another one made for yeah. other distribution and other purposes. <clears throat> there is yeah. another archive of dial material, and that's in an institution called the Indira Gandhi National Center for the Arts in Delhi. And um, this is a collection that has the negatives. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, I mean, it's, and it's quite a lot. It's about, from what I understand, 2,000 negatives. Mm-hmm. Um, and it came from the fa- family when the studio kind of uh, fell apart. And this collection has been entirely inaccessible for decades, and mm-hmm. for various reasons that's been given, from it's in a storehouse and a cow died in the storehouse so no one can go in, to various... The IGNCA is a, is a political institution, and there's government appointees that become the director there, and it's been mired in political scandal and conflict since the beginning. And so there's been problems and issues mm-hmm. about accessing the negatives. Mm-hmm. I've seen one negative, and that was through... That was after mm-hmm. weeks of cajoling. Mm-hmm. And there's currently, right now an exhibition of Dean Dial's photographs from the IGNCA's collection on right now at the IGNCA. But anyway, I can't even get into the scandal that that has resulted from. It, it's, it's, it's basically, and I'm going to India actually in two days to be able to see it before it closes because it's the first time some of that material has come out. Mm-hmm. But it's basically repros of digital images that were on a CD that were... Oh my gosh. Digital images of modern prints of some of the negatives. So that's like several generations removed from the original. But it still it allows you to see at least what might be there. But it's a collection that I think is is definitely waiting to be studied and will provide lots of new information. Um, well, I think the negatives will provide a lot yeah. of clues to some of the questions that... That you know, that you're still wondering about. Yeah, I'm. I'm um, dying to see if there's any painting on them. Or yeah, no, yeah. because that really kind of would introduce the, his practice and how he worked. Yeah, and you have the first kind of primary. So much too. more. Yeah. yeah. I think one more. I have a question about um, generations that have come and gone since the Maharajas, and um, are they known? And if so. Are they a possible um, source of um, negatives or reproductions associated mm. with this era of the Maharaj? That's that's a good question, and I I'll tell you that in at least the case of the Nizam, um, uh, successive generations there is still quite a large photography collection in the old palace um, where the Nizam used to live, and a lot of it is Dean Dial material, and um, it's it's likely that 
for the Maharaja, and, and there's actually we've we've been able to find some newspaper reports and some some records in the archives of of Andhra Pradesh, which is where Hyderabad is now, um, that indicate that um, that the Maharaja would keep the negatives, many of the negatives that the Dial Studio took of him or his wives, and so there is a whole material. I think there's a whole body of work that is um, private. Um, a little bit that has come out because that ca- collection is still being cataloged and is not as accessible either. But there's um, some very good evidence that that a much of the dial material, a, a whole body of it, is, is completely in private hands. And that's and I think that it is possible to think that that is the case in other royal collections that still survive. Um, a lot of royal collections have also been dispersed through the years. Um, many of them do have descendants who still live in pal- the palaces and um, uh, have collections that they curate and, and organize. But um, So I think that's a, a possibility. Yeah, I think... Thank you very, very much, Dipali, for a very interesting talk. And for reminding me to always question one's assumptions when you're looking at these images. And our next talk is on February, Wednesday, February 23rd, and it's Harry Krishnan from In Dance, and he is going to bring musicians and dancers with him and talk about courtly dance. And then on March 24th, we have Amir Jaffa, who is um, from Christie's. Am I right, Dipali? <laughs> yeah, he's from Christie's, yeah. Um, so that will be our next talk. So thank you very much again, Dipali. Thank you for listening to this Art Guy of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.